Showtime. 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 Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm Show, and as always, it's awesome to have you along for the ride. We have a lot to get to today, some very different movies to cover, some news regarding TIFF, some potential future guests, lots of things happening despite it being the dog days of summer. You know, I don't even sure, I'm not even sure what the dog days of summer means, you know, like dogs just hanging out or you're dogging it because it's so relentlessly boring. Like, I, I don't know, I feel like I should look up one of the, look it up one of these days, but regardless, we do have some relatively breaking news to discuss and you know it's not often we get to talk about specific breaking news with regards to movies the harvey weinstein scandal for example was certainly one you know and this one is pretty big as well but for a different much less heartbreaking reason thankfully you know star wars making some directorial changes you know actors getting fired and hired again and so on and so forth but this is a relatively non-politically charged issue but one it's interesting nonetheless and it seems as though the oscars themselves are making some changes as you may have heard the board of governors for the academy of motion picture arts and sciences and of course we just call them the academy i don't even know if i really call it the academy i guess it's just the oscars but i guess the oscars are the awards themselves the academy is the group whatever the academy re-elected john bailey as president and they also approved a number of different tweaks to the ceremony itself so bailey and uh, Academy CEO Don Hudson, they said in a letter to members that the board has, and I'm quoting here, committed to producing an entertaining show in three hours. And they went on to explain that this will be achieved partly by, quote unquote, presenting select categories live in the Dolby Theater during commercial breaks, categories to be determined. So those categories will not actually be removed from the telecast. And instead, and again, I quote, the winning moments will be then edited and aired later in the broadcast. And if you're thinking this sounds kind of familiar, it's because this format, this new format actually, is kind of same, samey, samey to the one employed at the Tonys, you know, which is, uh, you know, best theater productions on Broadway and that kind of thing. And those are, of course, on CBS. And they do that at the Tonys to recognize some of their lower profile categories. Although the Tonys present those awards and record the acceptance speeches of them during a portion before the ceremony. It's not even on TV at all versus during commercial breaks. And I'm sure as the Hollywood reporter uh, mentioned, they're presenting them during the commercial breaks of the Oscars, probably so that the nominees feel more like they're a part of the show. Right. And I'm not so thrilled with this because it feels like those who are getting Oscars for film editing, let's say, or sound design or hair and makeup or whatever, they're getting the short end of the stick, don't you think? I mean, the Oscars are the biggest televised award show, period. There's nothing bigger than the Oscars when it comes to receiving an award in entertainment, right? These people are being rewarded for being the absolute best. And they should get to go up on stage and accept their award in front of the world, just like the actors and the directors and the writers and the cinematographers, right? It seems crappy to shunt them to the side, and I dislike that a lot, actually, more than I really thought I would. And, and in terms of the Tonys, right, I think, sure, it works for them, but that's because the bulk of the actual Tonys, like the actual award show itself, are dedicated to performances from the shows, right? We've seen performances from The Lion King, Hamilton, most recently, Aladdin, and Chicago. I'm sure if you go back a little more, many, many, many others over the years, the producers I'm thinking of now. 
And that's what's being rewarded in the first place, right? Because that's what the theater is all about. These live performances and what it takes to put these live performances on. And because they are at their core live performances, you can have them in front of a, an awards audience, right? On, on a stage at a theater, which is where these award shows like the Tony specifically are being broadcast from, right? Of course, you and I would rather see that on our TVs, but are you really telling me that the Academy would rather shunt someone getting an Oscar for the first time after being nominated and not winning over like a decade to a commercial break just so we can see someone like Jimmy Kimmel march some celebrities over to a theater and shoot t-shirts and hot dogs into the audience? I mean, I just cut down on some of those stupid skits and jokes and let these people have their moment in the sun. It just seems kind of crazy to me that they'd rather, you know, crap on these people who worked really hard to make these amazing movies versus just let, let the host make some dumb jokes, like for the sake of ratings, I guess. I, I know that was, that's what drives thing, but things, but it's so disappointing to me. I don't know. And, and you know what's crazy, though? It's not even the worst change the Oscars made. The worst one is perhaps the creation of a new category, which will be for, quote, outstanding achievement in popular film. And don't get me wrong, I like the idea in theory, Right, Because if you remember The Dark Knight, for example, it, it was snubbed from both best, best Picture and Best Director to the point where Hugh Jackman actually sang about it in the opening of the Oscars that year, right? And it's not the only one to have ever suffered that, although it's probably the most notable one at the very least re- in recent memory, right? And in general, I'm not opposed to innovation in categories. We've all long heard the clamor for things like Best Stunt Sequence or Action Sequence, and I'd be all for that. I think that'd be a great way to reward these popular films, outstanding achievement in popular film, right? But for this, my main problem specifically is that this will now be a way for the Academy to snub these popular films, quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes here, for the more prestigious awards, right? It'll be a way for these old white dudes to say, oh, okay, well... I voted for Black Panther for Best Popular Picture, so it doesn't need a vote for Best Picture. It doesn't need a vote for Best Cinematography, right? I voted for Mission Impossible Fallout for this award, so it doesn't need a set design or sound editing or music this or whatever vote in any other category. It really just feels like the Academy is, you know, quote-unquote, throwing a bone to the movies that make a lot of money at the box office just so they can soothe their conscience about giving these indie oscar Beatty movies the nomination for Best Picture, Best Director, I don't know, best original or adapted screenplay, cinematography, et cetera, right? And don't, don't, don't get me wrong. Those movies like Three Billboards and The Shape of Water and La La Land and Moonlight from the years past, they deserve their awards, but to keep it an exclusive club just so the popular films don't get to sit at the big kids' table is so ridiculous. It really bothers me, right? And I admit, the criteria for this new category have not been released yet. So if it's maybe like a box office thing where they say, here are the top five or here are the top 10 grossing movies of the year. Pick your best film for this Oscar from these 10 movies. Then I'd be okay with that because it's not favoritism. They'd be directly engaging with the movies people want to go see the most in a given year, right? Otherwise, I'm not really sure how they handle it. I've said this before, but I love the Oscars. I freely admit it. I know it's a big circle jerk and that ultimately it's not really important to people like you and me, but at the same time, it's entertaining, and to see them make changes that disenfranchise people who are not giant Academy Award draws like Oscar, or sorry, like a- actors and directors and so on, and to disenfranchise the non-prestige movies, well, I-, I think it's a huge disappointment to me personally because I do really like the show. I will say this, though. To end the discussion, 
on a positive note, the only change that I really liked was the date change for the Oscar in 2020, which was the third change they announced, which would be the 92nd Oscars. And they're moving it out from February 23rd to now February 9th, which is amazing for me because not only will people not be burned out for waiting for so long after the ends of, you know, award season, but now for me personally, I can watch my two favorite televised events of the year, the Super Bowl, which is on February 2nd that year, and the Oscars within a week of one another. So that's pretty awesome. Although I will admit, actually, now that I think about it out loud, I usually have a Super Bowl party, and I usually have an Oscars party. So can I really have two big parties in back-to-back weeks where a lot of my friends overlap? Maybe I'll should. Maybe i have to talk my other friends into hosting the Super Bowl party this year so I can host the Oscars party because, I mean, no one else hosts the Oscars party. Maybe I'm just old-fashioned or, I don't know, maybe I'm just like a, a big nerd. I don't know. Whatever. I, dig- I digress. Big changes coming to the Oscars starting this year and some more details in the popcorn Oscar as it's now being called coming soon. And when we hear more about that, we'll talk about it on the podcast. But let's move on to the movies we're covering in this episode. I'm not even going to pretend that I themed the movies this week because we have a Netflix movie, a Disney movie, and a popcorny shark movie. So I can't even begin to link them all together. So we'll just go film by film individually. And we'll start with the Netflix movies because I do love how they've been pumping out these productions. So without further ado, one of the many movies available on Netflix's growing library of movies, Like Father. I'm sailing away Set an open course for the virgin sea. Cause I've got to be free. Like Father is one of the latest Netflix original movies. Although I admit, even though it just came out a few days ago, it feels like it could be already old news with the frequency Netflix releases things. But yes, an original Netflix film. And I've, I believe I mentioned this on the podcast before, but a lot of the movies that Netflix makes themselves are often quite bad, right? We talked about bright at length I, I briefly mentioned the cloverfield paradox i also reviewed that writing movie with adam sandler and chris rock which is so forgettable i'm having trouble remembering the name of the movie the night of no 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 no, no. that was the hbo that's an hbo show the week of the week of i'm not gonna check because the movie kind of sucked but okay like father it's a film about a woman who gets left at the altar runs into her estranged father the next day. They go drinking, they get fantastically drunk, and she drunkenly invites him to come on the honeymoon cruise she had booked for her and her former partner. And as you might imagine, hijinks ensue. Uh, Kristen Bell is the woman, Rachel. Uh, Kelsey Grammer is the dad, estranged dad, Harry. And Lauren Miller-Rogan is the director who puts it all together. And it's weird because in Netflix's categories, underneath the title of the film, right, it says the runtime, the rating the actors in it, and the category of film it's classed in. And Like Father is classed as both a comedy and a drama, which is weird to me because it's not very funny, nor is it very moving. i said this so many times. The worst sin a comedy can commit is to not be funny. And this is right up there with The Week Of, for example, right? Like, all of the comedy scenes are weird jokes surrounding the secondary characters, which you can essentially boil down to a white gay couple a black couple, and an old white couple. And all of the jokes surrounding Belle and Grammar are the, you know, oh, when did you guys get married? We're not married. We're father and daughter. And then you just repeat that for the next two hours. And on top of that, neither of the main characters really sell the drama either, right? They cry and they yell at each other. 
And all I could do was I looking at my watch or checking my phone or yawning, which is a shame, right? Because I really like Kristen Bell and Kelsey Grammer. It was actually super weird. Seth Rogen, the director's husband, is uh, also in this movie as, I quote, Jeff from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And there's one joke where he says, uh, he mentions that he has never, ever smoked weed, never touched the stuff, never wants to do it, whatever, which I guess is supposed to be a meta joke about Rogan's career, about how he does movies with his stoner buddies all the time. Like, I guess that was funny, I suppose. And that, oh, he's Seth Rogen is Canadian and he's from Canada in the movie. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. Seth Rogen in the movie for five whole minutes. It's just, it was, it was really strange to me, honestly. Like I kind of forgot he was in it because he's not introduced until about like 45 minutes in. And then he has probably three whole scenes. It's really strange. And the whole reason Rachel gets left at the altar in the first place is odd as well. She's an, she's a workaholic who almost misses the, you know, the here comes the bride song because she was on a phone call with a client and when she realizes she has to go, she hides the phone in her bouquet. And then, you know, she like drops the bouquet and the phone falls out. And her fiance goes, oh my God, this again. And he just like walks out on her citing conversations they've had before. It was, it was just weird because it was a strange way for the movie to start. That's how, this is how the movie starts, right? With her getting punished for, I guess, doing her job for working, right? Maybe, and maybe it was done by Lauren Miller Rogan, just so the viewers both dislike the groom immediately and are, you know, like quote unquote, on Rachel's side, but it just seemed particularly harsh because would anyone really do that? Like just walk out on this woman at her wedding? It's just really strange. Like I, I do admit though, if there was one part of the movie that really resonated with me, it was when Rachel and Harry are on a kayak as a part of an excursion during the cruise and they're chatting with one another. And uh, Rachel says, oh man, maybe I'm an asshole. Maybe I just wanted to get married because he, uh, the groom, uh, who, I, who I completely forget his name, so forgettable, but maybe I just wanted to get married because he felt familiar and maybe I should have broken it off before it got to that point of him proposing. And she basically takes the brunt of the blame, admitting that she wasn't super invested in the relationship. Now, the reason I say this resonates with me is because I was married once a number of years ago, which is crazy to think about. And it was probably a huge mistake and probably was a huge mistake, but I had dated this woman for uh, five years. I proposed, she said, yes, we were married a year later and she ended up leaving me for another guy within a few months of getting married. She, she cited all sorts of things. And while I don't know that I'm entirely over it, but one, one of the things that she said to me while we were getting divorced was that it was her fault. And I don't know if she actually believed that or not, or whether she just said that to make me feel better about the whole thing. But she basically said what Rachel said in this film. I should have broken it off with you before I got to the point of proposing. Maybe I just wanted to get married because you felt familiar, you know, that kind of thing. And I know it's in a movie and things in movies are often dramatized in ways that real life cannot be or just aren't. Right. But it was the, you know, I guess, quote unquote, realist moment for me in a movie that has so many unreal moments. And I don't mean unreal in a whoa, sick dude, but I mean, more of a, come on, is this really happening? So that kind of grounded Rachel as a character for me and Harry too, right? But uh, I don't know. It was, it was that's really the only great part part of the movie for me. And I should I don't even want to say great. It's like a it's like a probably a three minute scene at the absolute max. And it's only really it only really matters to me because it's personal, I guess, right? That the movie even ends in a note that you can see coming from a mile away. A musical number, this karaoke competition that just goes on forever. It never stops. Some say it might still be going even today. Now look, I don't want to spend too much longer talking about this movie because I don't think it's that great. But it's not the worst movie. And it actually, amazingly enough, might very well be the best 
Netflix original movie, which is mind-blowing because all that really means is that the other Netflix movies are utter garbage, right? I usually end these reviews by saying something like, maybe wait for it to come to Netflix, but that's not applicable here because, well, you know, it's, it's on Netflix to start, right? I will say this instead. This is the kind of movie that you probably go see with, like, your significant other or, you know, your girlfriends or your boyfriend or your, or sorry, your, your dude friends. I, I, I don't know. I butchered that super badly. But you go see it with your friends or maybe your parents or your significant other, let's just say, right? And I feel like if this movie had come out in theaters, it would have bombed. I think I said that about Bright as well because this movie is so tepid on every level that... It's so, like, I watched this movie last night and I forgot I watched it about an hour later. I watched the season uh, opener, the season two premiere of Luke Cage, which is also on Netflix, after I watched Like Father. And those 45 minutes are so much more interesting than this entire film. And I know, I know superheroes, you know, superpowers, and, you know, they, they add a lot of crazy soundtrack stuff and whatever, right? Sure. It's hard to compare. Maybe it's apples and oranges, but Netflix excels with the TV department, and I don't know what it is with their movie thing, but it's it, it kind of sucks, right? So I'll just say this. Save yourself the two hours and change and just go for a walk or something, right? Because at least there are benefits to that. There's nothing really beneficial to Like Father, and that's a little bit unfortunate. In terms of the other movies we have going on the podcast today, this next one is a... Disney movie, actually. We haven't done a Disney film in a while, and this Disney property actually hasn't really been a live action. I'm not sure if it ever has been, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I know it has been a movie before, animated, but I don't know if it's ever been a live action film. That's a great question, one I should probably have looked at before I started talking into the microphone, but regardless, we will still review it, and it's a fun, kind of wholesome movie. So without further ado, Christopher Robin. We should be working this weekend, Robin. But I, I promised my wife and daughter I'd take them away this weekend. All hands on deck. You won't be coming to the cottage. Well, it can't be helped. Your life is happening now, right in front of you. What to do, what to do, what to do. What to do, indeed. Who? Christopher Robin. No. The tree I remember was in the countryside, not here in London. There's no opening. I suppose it's where it needs to be. That's a silly explanation. Why, thank you. Christopher Robin is such an interesting movie. Of course, it's based on A.A. Milne's stories about Winnie the Pooh, which have all been adapted into, you know, television and movie-based media by Disney, as most people are likely familiar by now. And uh, we're we're all relatively familiar with the, what, melancholy, if you want to say, wistful voice you just heard in the beginning of the segment, of course, done by Jim Cummings, that... Even if you're not a longtime lover of Winnie the Pooh as a book or series or whatever, but even if you're not a big time fan, it's kind of hard not to have the heartstrings tugged on a little bit by this movie, I would say. And as you might imagine, the movie is about Christopher Robin, the boy who ostensibly imagined up his friends like Pooh, Tigger, Piglet, Eeyore, Owl, Roo, and Kanga. And then he ultimately goes away to boarding school and grows up into an adult who, of course, forgets about his imaginary friends, right? And the movie actually starts with a few sequences of him growing up into an adult who is Ewan McGregor, one of my favorite living actors. But as a child, we see him being sent away to boarding school, finding out his father had died, being at the funeral, meeting his future wife, 
who is played by Haley Atwell. He goes off to fight in World War II, comes back from the war, he meets his daughter, and then we're in present day where the movie begins, right? And it's interesting because those sequences are told in a kind of a book-flipping way, right? Like you're quickly flipping through these chapters of his life, and each chapter starts by saying something like, in which Christopher Robin goes to boarding school, and then they play a scene where he is shipped off to boarding school by his dad, right? Or in which Christopher Robin has a terrible tragedy befall him. And then you see his dad has passed away, right? And he's at the funeral. And in, in, in which Christopher meets Evelyn, and then you see Ewan McGregor now as an adult meets Haley Atwell on a bus or something, and then it flips forward a few pages and they're dancing, and then it flips forward a few more pages and she's pregnant, right? So, you know, it kind of just goes through his life like that. But it was kind of funny because the sequence about World War II where Ian McGregor is fighting in the war, he's bunkered down as, like, explosions are raining dirt all on top of him and his, his like, squad mates, I guess, and he's screaming into some kind of transmitter. He's screaming, where are my reinforcements? And all I could think of was, should this one be titled in which Christopher Robin kills a great many people on behalf of England? Like, I don't know. I felt kind of bad for laughing internally at that part. But to tell you the truth, I did think the opening of the movie, which goes on to show that he kind of barely spends time with his wife and daughter, whose name is Madeline, in favor of working constantly. I thought it was really, I thought it was really well done. It shows that he forgets how to have fun, that he's a joyless adult like the rest of us, I guess, and he can't go away with them to his family's cottage, which is now his, of course. And, of course, this is where Winnie the Pooh comes in, and he comes, drags Christopher Robin into an adventure in the Hundred Acre Wood, and in part helps him rediscover what it means to be a balanced adult. And I think that's the point of the movie, okay? I've seen a lot of people, critics especially, say, you know, this movie is dumb because it espouses throwing away your job, going to back to being a kid, and that's not realistic. And, of course, I'm simplifying what I've said, but that's a general gist, and I feel as though that's completely wrong. And I feel as though the film's message is that it's important to find a work-life balance because that's when you'll not only be happiest, but the most productive, right? Because we see time and time again in this movie that Christopher Robin is struggling to solve a problem for work. They need budget cuts. And should he like, how are they going to do it? Do they need, do they need new manufacturers for their, like, he works for some luggage company, I think. And he, you know, he, does he, do they need more manufacturers for their luggage? Can they put the bot or replace the bottom of the luggage with a cheaper material? Is it like maybe a cheaper paint of some kind, maybe like a cheaper kind of wood or metal maybe, or do they have to fire people, you know? And, He's working until the dead of night all the time. He's throwing away vacation time with his family, blah, blah, blah. And at the end of it, he re- when he rediscovers how to have fun, thanks to Winnie the Pooh, you think he'd quit his job. But instead, because he's now balanced, he ends up finding a solution to the budget problems, make them more, makes them more profitable than ever. Life is great again, you know. And I think that's what it's trying to say. Go to work, do your job, because that's a way to be fulfilled in life, but it's not the only way, as family and friends are important as well. And I think that's, you know, that's the kind of life lesson they're trying to impart here, because it's it's true. I think I like my job, but I also like to have fun. I'm sure you do too, right? So I think that's what Christopher Robin as a film is trying to say, right? Because you have to pay attention to the important things in life, but of course you have to, you know, have a job and pay for things. And maybe that's like a overly capitalistic way of viewing it. Maybe people who are like really against capitalism will not like that. Cause I feel like that is what it's about. But at the same time, ultimately in today's climate, I thought it was a pleasant little message, right? And I think pleasant is a word I'll be using a lot more 
for this review because that's, I think, the one word. Remember I said for Mission Impossible, thrilling is like the one word review I would use for that. Pleasant is the one word I would use for Christopher Robin. I like, I just like it, you know? Although, And on a completely different note, I mentioned at the beginning of the review that Christopher Robin would, you know, travel, I'm using air quotes here, to the Hundred Acre Wood, this realm in which Pooh and the others live in, right? And I feel as though we're all conditioned to think that it's an imaginary realm where Christopher Robin was just running around with his teddy bear and an empty plane in real life, kind of like Calvin and Hobbes, right? Like the comic with Calvin and Hobbes, we see Calvin like running around the house and he's like jumping off of chairs and in the, in the mud and he's really just playing with his teddy bear. But Hobbes is like an imaginary being that we, the audience, see as like a, re- a fully realized being with emotions and expressions and feelings and so on, right? Well, let me tell you, that's not the case. The Hundred Acre Wood is a magical but real place. Pooh and friends are real, living, breathing beings, and you can travel to and from physically these realms because we see in this film Pooh talk to, interact with in general, train operators, taxi drivers, policemen outside of Christopher Robin. He interacts with Evelyn towards the end of the movie. He interacts with Madeline, their daughter, at the end of the movie, right? And... Often those movies are pretty funny, but it's just kind of crazy to me that they took the view that everything is real, right? Like, they're basically friendly alien creatures from another dimension. Like, what are the other dimensions like, right? Maybe this is a multiverse where the other live-action Disney properties like Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella and Maleficent, Aladdin, The Rescuers, if I'm going back a little further, The Great Mouse Detective, Snow White. Maybe they're all just... Uh, a tree portal away or something like that, right? I think it's kind of funny. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the actual actors, Ewan McGregor and Haley Atwell, I mentioned, they're the only kind of major actors, only real actors in this movie. Everyone else are kind of side people, right? They're awesome as usual, and I kind of wish they'd be in more movies because they're so, like I said, pleasantly entertaining, right? I'm still kind of hold- holding out hope for Kenobi, a Star Wars story, but I guess we'll see by next April when I go to the Star Wars convention in Chicago. But regardless, they're awesome, but the real highlight, I would say, of course, as you would expect, I think, are Winnie the Pooh and company, right? They're all just so lovingly animated, right? Pooh really just does look like an old teddy bear, complete with, like, you know, those shiny marble-like eyes, matted fur, right? Tigger has matted fur as well, and... You know, his, his, sure, his tail is coiled up like a spring, like it always is. Piglet has his little, like, wool scarf, and he looks like he's been knitted together, and Eeyore's tail comes off, and his ears droop, and when he falls into the water, it, like, looks like a toy getting wet, right? All of them look like, you expect him to look in toy form. Like, you'd expect a teddy bear to look like, especially a teddy bear from, let's say, the early 1900s, right? Because this takes place in, like, 1945 or 46 or whenever World War II ends, right? And then on top of that, you add the voice work of Jim Cummings for, let's say, Pooh and Tigger, and the effect is so immediately to transport you back to being a kid, it's amazing. Honestly, it's so um, amazing. It's so much fun. There's some fun sequences, too, like when Christopher Robin goes to the Hundred Acre Wood and he interacts with the you know, they, I don't know if you remember, but the, the kind of villains of the, I don't have villains, like Thanos, the Thanos of the Winnie the Pooh universe. No, but the villains of the Winnie the Pooh universe are, you know, the, uh, Woozles and Heffalumps. And they're, I guess they're like, I think the Heffalump is supposed to be like an elephant, like Dumbo, like creature that like terrorizes them. And they've never seen them. They only think that, I think this, the, the point is that they're, they're not real. Right. But when Christopher Robin goes back to the Hundred Acre Wood, he 
pretends to be a heffalump so that he can like gain their trust again because they think he's a heffalump. And I guess that's the whole point, right? Like maybe adults are really heffalumps or the idea of growing up is the real heffalump, right? Or greed and laziness are the woozles. I think that's the point of the movie again to kind of, you know, bring these childlike terms we all read about and saw on TV and in movies when we were kids into like the 21st century kind of thing, right? But Christopher Robin pretends to be a heffalump and pretends to slay the heffalump. And of course, in slaying the heffalump, he learns how to rediscover. He rediscovers how to have fun. And, you know, I think that's the whole point, right? But uh, in addition to all of those kind of fun metaphor stuff and the amazing computer animation, the comedic moments are pretty great, honestly. Like there's one where the toys talk to a taxi cab driver and they crash into a newspaper stand and Tigger then talks to the newspaper man and the responding police officer who is convinced the three of them are losing their minds so clearly the toys are meant to be like real quote-unquote right but ultimately it's a pretty funny movie overall and i think if you're looking for some light escapism some light pleasant movie going experiences it has a satisfactory ending then you know what you should go see christopher robin this summer because ultimately i think you won't be disappointed the last movie on the docket for tonight is, of course, The Meg. I'm sure you've all seen those weirdo trailers uh, in theaters. So I'm, I'm actually quite excited to talk about this one because it's such a different movie. I don't know if that necessarily translates to good, right? I think I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, about the idea of something being entertaining versus something being good. You know, so... Regardless, I, I get we'll get that, we'll get into that. I should say a little more in depth in the review. So let's get right to it and talk about the Meg. Ever since I saw the first trailer for The Meg, which unfortunately as a movie doesn't have this same music here playing in it, but whatever, uh, I've somewhat been intrigued because the trailer has one of the strangest tones I've ever seen. You know, it's a scary monster shark movie, and yet the trailer is full of comedy and upbeat Frank Sinatra music, which is kind of funny. I mean, we all know Jason Statham, who's the movie star has uh, some comedic chops and as a side note if you've never seen Spy with Melissa McCarthy and Statham and Jude Law and stuff that is one of the funniest movies of this decade and you should stop what you're doing right now well okay stop what you're doing after you listen to my podcast but then go watch it but the Meg is a for a scary monster shark movie is a way more of a funny movie than it lets on like yeah it has some jump scares but they're not that huge you know it's I would not class this as a horror movie it's really just a silly monster movie, right? And basically the pseudoscience of the movie tells us that 200 miles off the coast of Shanghai, there's a mining platform where underneath sits a very expensive research facility where they're about to discover that the ocean floor of the Marianas Trench, I forget if it's the trench itself or if it's just a general ocean floor. I think it was the Marianas Trench, but that the floor is actually some layer of supercooled gas or ice or something. I don't know. Pseudoscience, right? But it's unclear what it actually is, but regardless, the submarines manage to like laser through it or whatever, and underneath they find a whole new world of marine life, including, of course, the gigantic megalodon shark. Megalodon shark. Wow, I butchered that word really, really badly, didn't I not? But megalodon shark, the Meg. It's probably why this movie is called The Meg, so people aren't saying, oh my god, it's a megalodon, which Jason Statham does say like once, and then he just calls it The Meg every instance 
therefore after, right? But regardless, they escape back to the supercooled layer of whatever it is, and the shark kind of escapes with them, and it's unleashed upon an unsuspecting world, and the survivors have to kill it before it kills too many other people, right? So pretty standard stuff, I would say, right? I've, I admit I fully went into this film with really amazingly low expectations. Like, I really told my roommate, I really hoped this movie was either funny enough to be entertaining or just abjectly bad so we could just dunk on it whenever we wanted. But maybe because my expectations were so low to begin with, it was honestly pretty fun. No, it's not great. But it was more, and it was more than a limp, little campy, but that doesn't mean it can, can't also be fun, right? I'm not saying it's like Hollywood elite movie status, right? J.D. Bunkus likes to make fun of me a lot. We've had him on the show before, and of course, he's the co-host at Sportsnet 590, the fan of uh, Good Show, and he likes to make fun of me because I, oh, what are you going to see tonight's show? Oh, I'm going to see The Meg, but regardless, it was honestly fun. Like, again, low expectations do play into that some a little bit, but still, right? I mean, Jason Statham was in fine form as the, what, wary, grizzled survivor who comes back and saves everyone's asses while the female lead is Bing Bing Lee, who is a pretty popular Chinese actress and singer, and it's a good thing they included her, considering the movie takes place entirely in China, or in, the, in Chinese waters, I should say. And you might remember her from uh, Western movies like the Resident Evil movies. She was uh, Ada Wong, who's a pretty popular character from those uh, movies, which are, of course, adapted from a video game. Or She was in The Forbidden Kingdom, you know, that martial arts movie from a few years ago, more than a few years ago, but that martial arts movie that was uh, billed as a showdown between Jackie Chan and Jet Li. And, and then, of course, she was in Transformers 4, unfortunately for her, but whatever, that's okay. Regardless, she is awesome as Suyin, the female lead, as mentioned, and the rest are pretty inconsequential. Like, there's Ruby Rose as some engineer, and Rain Wilson, uh, who is, of course, Dwight from The Office, uh, the television show, the American version of The Office, I should say. And he's the uh, asshole billionaire who founded and financed the whole thing, right? Then he has some of the throw-ins, like Cliff Curtis as well, right? But it's nuts for me to say this, but the best actor slash performance of this whole movie is probably from this little girl. The actress's name is Shuya Sophia Kai, the eight-year-old. And she plays the daughter of Suyin, uh, Bing Bing Lee's character, who is both funny and believable as a little girl. She addresses Jason Statham's character, Jonas, as crazy all the time. Like, hey, crazy, or what are you up to, crazy? And it's pretty funny. And I say it's nuts because I generally dislike child actors, but this one was so much better than all the other cardboard cutouts in this film that it's pretty notable, which is funny itself, I think. <laughs> Ultimately, though, it's a fun but kind of forgettable you know, like not forgettable in the same way that Like Father is, but forgettable in that there are other shark slash monster movies out there that you could probably go see. For one thing, not nearly enough main characters die, right? So to recap who's in this movie, you have Statham and Lee as the two leads. Uh, there's a, a character, Jonas's ex-wife pilot, who suspiciously looks like Rebecca Romaine, but is somehow not. You have Ruby Rose, like I mentioned, as the engineer. Cliff Curtis as the kind of tech head. Paige Kennedy, who I've never really seen before. That's his name, according to IMDb, as the ops guy. There's a doctor. There's another fat engineer. There's Rain Wilson, like I mentioned. Winston Chow is Suyin's father. And of these main characters, right? These are the main characters we spend the most time with over the course of the movie. The doctor, the fat engineer, Suyin's dad, who dies not related, like he doesn't die because the shark eats him, he dies as a result of something else, and the asshole billionaire all die, right? So the shark specifically kills three people. And apart from that, no one else dies, right? Everyone has just had close encounters with the shark, and that's kind of it. Like, sure, a lot of random people die when we see the scene from the trailer where the shark attacks a crowded beach, but who cares about those people, right? Like, they're essentially extras who we don't care about. It's like seeing a building getting blown up in an action movie. You don't really care. You just want to see the, the collateral damage for the spectacle, right? 
I mean, if you want a shark movie, I don't know. That's the kind of thing you want in it, right? Oddly, they actually didn't have a reference to Jaws, which is the movie that kind of started this whole trend back in the 70s in the first place. But it was kind of jarring for me because I was kind of waiting for it the whole movie. And then it never came. You know, no, we're going to need a bigger boat or what. And I think I noticed it so glaringly because it's not as though this movie took itself seriously at all, right? Like, it's not as though the movie was so prestigious that it couldn't dare to not have a reference to Jaws. It had a Finding Nemo or it had a Finding Nemo reference, right? So you're telling me it couldn't have referenced Jaws? Like, I was a little disappointed, to say the least, yet I do admit that that is an, a silly reason to criticize the movie. So I, I guess take that little last bit at, with a grain of salt, I suppose. Uh... The best part of this movie, I would say, for sure, are the visuals, right? The shark, the water, everything about this movie was stunning visually. Like, it was really cool to see the shark move as fluidly as it did, and it looked frighteningly, startlingly real. I mean, you compare that with Jaws from the 70s, like we were just talking about, and it looks laughable by comparison, right? Like, even if you go back a few summers ago to The Shallows with Blake Lively, which was actually a pretty good shark movie, the one in this movie is, like, you've probably never seen before, and that's a good thing, I think. I mean, filming water is never easy as well. And while I'm sure a lot of it was actually just straight CGI, like a green screen, it's also just cool to see them be able to do that. Where it ranks in terms of shark movies, I admit I don't go to see a lot of shark movies. I mean, it's it's more serious than Sharknado, probably more serious than Deep Blue Sea, but Deep Blue Sea, I think, is more entertaining. And if you guys don't remember Deep Blue Sea, Samuel Jackson, LL Cool J's in that movie as a chef. I always remember there's a scene in that. I think he lives, actually, through the end of the movie. There's a scene in that movie where he has a parrot or something, and the shark eats the parrot. And at the end of the film, he, like, lights the kitchen on fire, and there's gas everywhere, and he lights his lighter, and he goes, you kill my bird. And then he throws the lighter, and it blows up, like, half the station or something. I don't know. That movie just embraced the campiness a little more, and it almost seemed like, despite the fact that the Meg obviously was not trying to be serious, it kept on going as though it kind of was. You know, like, it didn't want to go too far into that territory, whereas Deep Blue Sea was kind of like, you know what, screw it. We're going to do whatever the hell we want. Like, we're going to kill Samuel Jackson in the middle of his big speech, right? So I think in terms of those older movies, it's not as silly but it's not that serious either, right? I know that's maybe doesn't really help, but if ultimately I think the Meg gives you exactly what the trailer promised, right? Which is relatively rare these, these days, but what it promised is a fun, kind of campy movie that has little in the way of acting, but a lot in shark visuals that kills a lot of people. And if that's what you want out of a popcorn summer flick, like if that's what you wanted out of The Shallows, which I guess you didn't really get because that was a serious kind of thrillery movie about a one woman being trapped by a shark, right? So if you didn't get that from The Shallows, but you want something a little more in line with Deep Blue Sea, I think you're going to be satisfied by the Meg, right? Because that's, I think, what you want out of these late, early to late, mid, late August movies, popcorn summer movies. And by all means, go see the Meg because you'll definitely enjoy it if that's what you're looking for. That's it for movies today. Pretty weird assortment of films, wouldn't you say? Like Father, Christopher Robin, and the Meg all have so little in common. I struggle to find one thing thematically that they all share, like they all have white male leads, I guess. Right. But that could be pretty much every movie ever. So I guess, yeah, let's, uh, uh, let's steer away from the, uh, thematic comparisons for this week, at least. Right. Um, in what is some kind of podcast caretaking, I guess, let's say, uh, some news and stuff. Uh, after we had on uh, Tim Grierson last episode for mission impossible fallout, 
I've been motivated to get more guests, right? Because it's always fun talking to someone else. I know you guys love hearing my voice, but especially as we approach Oscar season and more interesting things are happening, it's just fun to talk to other people, right? So I've already decided that for the Oscars, for example, Quentin Amundsen, who you might recall from the 90th Academy Awards episode, will be back for this year. And I'm hoping Quentin will be, you know, my guy for awards since he so avidly follows them, even more than me, honestly. So we have that to look forward to. I reached out to some critics to chat about Crazy Rich Asians, which we'll be devoting a lot of time to next episode because it's an important film in terms of representation, right? And I'm not Asian, but just as I said when Black Panther came out, as a minority I feel connected to these issues, and I think it's important to support these movies, so we'll hopefully get someone on to talk about it a little more eloquently than I. I've also reached out to some guys from The Ringer, and I've heard back with some positive things, but I think we might wait until TIFF is over after the first week week or two of September and everyone has settled down before having them on for sure, right? And, of course, speaking of TIFF, I'm extremely excited to say I've been granted accreditation in the form of a press day pass for a few days during the festival. I think that's an exciting start. So while I won't be going to every single film or every single day of TIFF, I will be going to a handful, and that's that means there will be some bonus content for the podcast going forward. I think for festivals like that, like Hot Docs and TIFF, I'm not going to count the TIFF content in the regular rotation of podcast episodes unless the movie I'm going to see is a huge release, and I'll just otherwise treat it as extra content, given that TIFF often releases movies, you know, months before they actually hit theaters. Like last year I did Disobedience in the Mountain Between Us, and those movies didn't come to theaters for ages, right? I mean, at least at least I was well ahead of the game on that one, but still, I figure that will be how we'll treat the TIFF content, again, barring, like, First Man or something like that, right? But as for the movie... We'll be pairing with Crazy Rich Asians next week. We'll be hitting up Black Klansman, Spike Lee's latest film starring John David Washington and Adam Driver. So if you're interested in reading more about it rather than hearing me preview it like we usually do, uh, of course, we'll review it like we usually do next week. But if you want to read something about it in the meantime, I'd advise you to go and read Rembert Brown's awesome piece for Time Magazine. It's available online for free. It's a long-form article that also kind of well, not kind of, it heavily features an interview with Spike Lee, the director, and it's fantastic, honestly. I was already excited to see this movie, but the article amped it up even more somehow. And that's always a bonus, I think, for me, right? But regardless, that's all the caretaking for today, and so that's it for me. Thank you for listening, as always. I appreciate your feedback, and if you could be so kind as to leave a review and ratings on iTunes or Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts, that would be very much appreciated. But... For now, though, this has been episode 28 of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.